This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 17th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Megan Cantwell talks with science writer Sarah Tolpas about a nonstick chemical that sticks around in groundwater. And I talk with Sham Golakota about his science translational medicine paper on using a smartphone to listen for ear infections. I'm here with Sarah Talpis, who wrote this week's feature to talk about how a small group of citizens in Rockford, Michigan, uncovered groundwater contamination in their town and what the greater implications of this discovery are. Thanks so much for joining me, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Megan. Yeah, of course. So could you talk about what prompted these citizens to investigate whether the shoe company factory in their town, Wolverine Worldwide, had contaminated their water? In 2009, Wolverine Worldwide announced that they would be closing their tannery, which had been in operation for over a century. And the citizens were requesting the company first do a comprehensive environmental assessment of the property before the demolition. They knew from other tannery closures that tanneries often use hazardous substances when they're transforming raw hides into leather. And so they wanted to be sure that those same substances had not been sort of left behind on the tannery grounds. They were told that because there was no evidence of contamination on the property, that there was really essentially no way to require that testing be done. Meanwhile, Wolverine had said there was no known contamination on the property. They asked the city to assess this site, but they did not want to. Instead, they went and got the help of a scientist and launched their own investigation. What did they find from this? They uncovered, helped uncover some of the highest levels of PFAS contamination in drinking water wells anywhere in the country. And after many years of trying to get the company to test the tannery grounds, discovered that the tannery grounds are also contaminated with PFAS. What exactly is PFAS and how long has this chemical been in production? PFASs are a class of chemicals known as per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. They were first synthesized by American chemists in the 1930s and 40s. And their salient chemical feature is that they have a carbon-fluorine bond And that's among the strongest of all chemical bonds. It doesn't degrade naturally in the environment. 
that can be very useful for some products. It lends durability. And also these compounds can repel water and oil and stains. And so they're widely used in products such as firefighting foams, nonstick coatings, carpets, food packaging, even dental floss, some dental flosses it was discovered recently. There are over 4,000 of these compounds, but the two most widely studied are called PFOA, sometimes referred to as PFOA, and PFOS. Those two are no longer in production in the U.S. What are the impacts of these chemicals on human health? We're still looking into that. There was a massive epidemiological study called the C8 Health Project that looked at people exposed in West Virginia and Ohio. They were exposed to PFOA and their drinking water. And in that project, what they found was a probable link to six conditions that included high cholesterol, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, and pregnancy-induced hypertension. Initially, a lot of the PFAS research focused on these communities where there had been this high level of exposure. More recent studies have started looking at the general population. And I think that that's where this gets really interesting because what they're starting to find is that studies are suggesting that even people exposed to what might be referred to as background levels of PFASs show negative health effects. Most interestingly, and maybe most concerningly, some of these negative effects are on the developing fetus, babies. So researchers are saying that it can affect, for example, the immune system in these populations. Is there a standard level for what's considered a dangerous PFAS level, or is that something that's still also being determined? That is very much being determined. And I believe it was 2009, the EPA established a health advisory level of 600 parts per trillion of PFOA and PFOS combined in drinking water. And then in 2016, they dropped that level significantly to 70 parts per trillion. And then in 2018, a branch of the CDC came out with a new study suggesting 21 parts per trillion for PFOA and 14 parts per trillion for PFOS. And then you have some researchers, one at Harvard, saying one part per trillion is where that level should be. So there's a lot of conversation around what is a protective level in drinking water. This investigation in this small town has also prompted other areas to look into what their PFAS levels are and what has this unveiled? One of the interesting consequences of the concerned citizens' work is that shortly after the state of Michigan launched what I believe is the most comprehensive statewide survey searching for PFASs. And what they found is that here in Michigan, nearly 1.4 million residents are drinking water from sources contaminated with PFASs. It's also showing up in things like foam that's on our rivers. And so There have been a number of advisories, do not eat the foam, don't touch the foam, fish advisories, deer advisories. It's really this extensive, ubiquitous exposure to these compounds. And then other states also are just starting to look, but nobody has looked quite as comprehensively as the state of Michigan has. Right. It's interesting that all these investigations are being prompted, but this also isn't the first time that PFASs have been under investigation. It happened several decades ago as well, right? Are you referring to the DuPont trial? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometime around 1999, early 2000s, a cattle farmer in West Virginia suspected that something was going on. Some of his farmland had been purchased by DuPont. And not long after that, his cattle died and he wasn't able to get much help locally. And so he ended up going to a Cincinnati-based attorney who sued the company. And in the process of that, he was able to obtain a lot of internal documents from DuPont. And what he found in those documents was that both DuPont and 3M, who had been making PFASs as well, had been documenting negative health effects from exposure experienced by humans and animals, and that they hadn't done enough to make this available to the EPA, for example. And so the attorney sent these documents to the EPA, and subsequently DuPont was fined, and 3M was fined, I believe, a year later. It was around that time that both companies agreed to voluntarily phase out PFOA and PFOS. So when they phase them out, they replace them with a different chemical. Is this one actually safer or persists less in the environment? Well, that is a matter of conversation. They replaced PFOA and PFOS. Those two compounds are known as long chain PFASs. They replaced them with shorter chain PFASs, so molecules with fewer carbons. And what we do know is that those carbons don't bioaccumulate the same way as the longer chain compounds. And for that reason, there's an assumption out there that these are safer. But there are studies just starting, this is just starting to be studied, suggesting that this might not be the case. And the National Toxicology Program, for example, is in the process of starting a study of, I believe it's 125 of these lesser known short chain compounds to see if they really are safer than the longer chain compounds. After this this fine that they received, were there cleanup efforts or is there a way to clean up these PFASs from water supplies? What we know is that you can use something called granular activated carbon to filter out, in particular, longer chain PFASs, so PFOA and PFOS, from drinking water. However, that approach, it has variable success with the shorter chain PFASs, which can sometimes break through the filter and they can break through more quickly. So one of the things that water systems are starting to look at is using perhaps a combination of granular activated carbon with reverse osmosis, which is a little bit more effective at filtering out short chain PFASs. All of this though is very expensive. And so that has really put, especially some of these smaller municipalities in a tough spot. I know there's like super fun cleanup sites, that kind of thing. Is there any sort of fund that these local communities can tap into that'll pay for this remediation? One of the things is that because PFAS is not designated as a hazardous substance, it doesn't qualify, as far as I know, for cleanup funds through Superfund. Now, some states are starting to pass their own legislation. New York, for example, does designate PFAS as a hazardous substance, so you can get funding through there. And then the other thing that states are starting to do is actually sue the manufacturers 
to try and recuperate some of the costs of updating their drinking water systems. Would you say this whole investigation all across the country is still kind of in the first step of finding where these sites are and then the next step of cleanup is still a little bit murkier. Yeah, that's very true. Historically, our understanding of PFAS and PFAS exposure has really been concentrated in these areas around particular, a very few limited number of military bases and also communities that are near manufacturing facilities. And what we're starting to find now is, especially as we have the tools to detect PFASs at lower levels, we're finding that these are in drinking water supplies in places people would never have suspected. But not everybody is looking. And so that's one of the things that I think different states and different municipalities will be grappling with for years to come. Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Sarah Talpis is a freelance writer and senior editor at Undark. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Sham Golakota on using phones to listen to ear infections. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the podcast Science Rules. Bill Nye has a new podcast out now called Science Rules. Yes, that Bill Nye. You'll probably know him as the science guy. And this show is for everyone that loved his show when you were a kid. On Science Rules, Bill Nye takes calls from listeners and answers all their weird, embarrassing, funny, and occasionally more serious questions. Questions like, should we stop eating cheeseburgers to combat climate change? How do we go about putting colonies on Mars? Will I ever upload my brain to a computer? The first episode of Science Rules is out now, so you can check it out right after this and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Now we have Shab Golakota. He and his colleagues have come up with a way to use smartphones to detect ear infections. Hi. Hi, Sarah. I'm all for using smartphones for everything, listening to music, watching TV on the train, mapping my location and keeping track of my health. And now ear infection. What was the standard way to look for ear infections in the past? What kind of devices were used? So in the past, people have used devices such as pneumatic otoscopy and tympanometry, techniques which are used by specialists where you need to get a referral and people put a device, a special device, which is, can be pretty expensive. And these devices are traditionally used to figure out if you have fluid buildup, which is associated with ear infections. Typically, a pediatrician or a general practitioner wouldn't have one of these in their offices. That is correct. So typically, a pediatrician looks at the ear to figure out if there is any kind of a fluid buildup. And that is not as accurate. In fact, some of the studies have shown that the accuracy of just looking at it can be as low as 51%, which is basically coin flip. Why do you need to look for fluid in the ear? What, what does that indicate about your ear health? Fluid actually is one of the most common problems, which affects more than 80% of the children. And when the fluid gets infected, that basically means that you have an ear infection. And as you know, ear infections are the most common reason why parents bring children to the pediatrician. Fluid buildup is also problematic, even if it's not infected, because it can lead to hearing loss, developmental delay, and other medical complications. Can you talk about what the setup is like, what you're using on the phone to detect fluid buildup? 
Yeah, this is actually very interesting because the way we make the system work is by transforming the phone into like how a bat works. <laughs> so we use the speakers and the microphone on the smartphone. So if you look at a typical smartphone, both the speaker and microphone are kind of collocated. Yeah. So we transmit soft audible chirps from the speaker. This basically goes into your ear canal and gets reflected off the eardrum and you get the reflections of that sound back at the microphone which is on the phone itself so depending on whether there's fluid in the ear or not the eardrum is going to vibrate differently which means that the sound reflections are going to be different let's say you have a glass of wine and you're tapping the glass of wine depending on how much liquid there is you're going to get a different sound in this particular situation as well if you use machine learning on top of these reflections or sounds, we can figure out and detect if there's fluid in the middle ear. How does machine learning figure in? Is that you're uploading kind of a profile of a normal sounding ear that's been determined through machine learning? Yeah, so the way machine learning operates is that you have data for ears which do not have fluid and you have data for ears with fluid and we train the machine learning model. We basically use something called a SVM to support vector machine and it can in real time, given a new patient, figure out if the reflections correspond to class one, which is basically infections, or class two, which is lack of fluid. When you tested this, you used real patients. Were they children? Were they adults? Do you have a model for all ear sizes? Yeah. So when we tested it, actually, we tested it at the Seattle Children's Hospital. When patients come to the, to the hospital to undergo eardrum placement, they do have an incision eardrum and they drain out the fluid. And that's how we know for a fact that there is fluid in the, in the middle ear. So what we do is that in the morning of the surgery, we test our app on the children, on the basically children from nine, nine months of age to 17 years of age. It's a pretty wide uh, range of ages. And then the surgery is performed and the, the surgeon who is performing the surgery basically figures out if there is drainage of fluid. And that's basically how we know if there is actually drainage of fluid or mm -hmm. not. And that basically gives us our ground truth, so to speak, about what is really happening with that particular year. Yeah, that's a really neat way of doing it. So you do have a wide range of sizes of ears. Could this also be used in, in like an adult, like 30-year-olds, 50-year-olds, that kind of thing? It can be potentially used. We need, to, we need to just train it in the adults to make sure that we are accounting for the variability in that age group. Right. What if people have a lot of wax in their ears? Yeah, that's a great question. So wax is one thing which affects a lot of these techniques. So we did actually see that in the patients we tested with, there was up to 50% blockage because of wax. Ugh. And it still worked with 50%. And the second thing which we also tested is that if we actually have a 100% blockage with terms of wax, which means that nothing is going to, you can't even see the eardrum, no sound is going to go to the eardrum, the app can actually detect the presence of complete blockage because of ear wax. So it tells you to first clean your ears and then test again. Exactly. Okay. The other thing I was interested in knowing is since it's a mobile phone, is this something that you know, someone could do to themselves or a parent could do to a child, could they test the ear? That's exactly the goal of this particular technology, which is that we want to make figuring out if someone has an ear infection as accessible as possible by using something as uh, prevalent as a smartphone. So to do this, basically, we did run a study, clinical study again, where we got parents to do testing with the kids and figured out how their accuracy compared 
to a surgeon. First, the surgeon showed the parents how to do it, which is basically make them sit in an upright position and then put the phone with the funnel into the ear. Right. We haven't we haven't mentioned the funnel yet. This is a tiny paper cone that you cut out and uh, tape to your phone to channel the sound into the right location. That is correct. The the surgeons basically showed them how to do it. And then the parents played with the phone a little bit. And then they actually did the study. And we compared how well they performed with what the surgeon actually performed and showed that the actual accuracies were within 94 to 98%. The parents were as good as the doctors. But what about, you know, how does this app compare to some of those devices that we talked about earlier? Yeah, so we basically get a sensitivity and specificity of around 85 to 83 percent. And tympanometry and pneumatic otoscopy have a sensitivity and specificity of around 89 percent. So pretty comparable with a few percentage points low. But the advantage is that you don't need any specialized hardware. All you need is a smartphone. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that this could get better as more and more people use it and there gets to be a bigger data set. That is correct. So we, we had a data set of around 98 patient years. If you basically deploy it and get more, more and more data, as with any machine learning algorithm, we can get better and better accuracies. What made you decide to do this, this study to figure out you know, how to make a portable ear infection detection device? My lab has been working on a lot of active sonar technologies, which use a phone to transform it into something, uh, into a bat. And we have used this for detecting apnea. We use this for uh, figuring out if someone has an opioid overdosis, which was published actually at Science Translational Medicine uh, in January. There we were trying to figure out if someone was actually having a breathing pattern in a contactless manner. And this specific thing of trying to figure out how slowly your eardrum vibrates using sound is something which technically is interesting. And talking to our pediatric friends, uh, it clearly seemed like one of the biggest needs they have in their uh, community, which is figuring out accurately if someone has ear infection infections and making sure that the solution is accessible and what is more accessible than a smartphone. And in the true spirit of DIY, the little paper funnel that we talked about, there's a pattern for that in your paper in the supplemental data. So someone could print that out and cut it out and tape it to their phone. But could they also download the app and, and try this out at home or is that still in the works? So we are really excited about this technology and we set up a company called Eda's Health to commercialize this technology and we are now going through the FDA process and hoping that we can release this app for millions of people to potentially use by the end of this year. Okay, great. Sham Golakota, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Sham Golakota is an associate professor at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places. Or you can listen to us on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. 
Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.